See if you can find the uh, third chapter of the book of Romans. I hope that you will uh, encourage your friends to get involved in the study of the book of Romans, the most profoundly theological book in the New Testament. And it deals with the basic truths, basic theological truths that, that you and I need to understand and we need to grasp. In our text tonight, the place of study is from the 21st verse of chapter 3 through, chap through verse 31. You'll find that, please. We were standing in line today at the, uh, in there in the fellowship hall in our meal with the adopted college students, and we were talking about how young we were when we got married. I can't remember when I wasn't married, just to be honest with you. <laughs> I don't even remember what it was like to be single. Uh, I was putting a, a, a calculating it a while ago. I've been married. I'm not that old, really. I was really young when I got married. And I've been married almost twice as long as I was single, believe it or not. And I can't remember when I, what it was like. Now that often happens in the Christian life. You know, the, we can be in Christ so long that we forget what it was like outside of Christ. And that's really uh, kind of tragic, really. We need to keep remembering what it was like outside of Christ. The, uh, the aloneness that, that we must have felt, that we felt, and the guilt that I remember and the fear of death. And we need to keep reminding ourselves of what it was like before that. And that's one reason why the book of Romans was written, because the Apostle Paul wanted to keep on reminding us of what it was like then. Barbara Streisand, who has a marvelous, you know, that, that great song that sold millions of records, The Way We Were. The book of Romans tells us the way we were and reminds us of it. This is the way we were. But he comes down to this passage of Scripture and this section and begins this section with this tremendous transition sentence in verse 21. But now, but now. It's like coming out of the slums into a new part of town. It's like rounding the corner coming out of the slum section, and all of a sudden there's nothing but beauty and health and, and, and life out there. It reminds me of when we took that Gray Line bus tour in New York City. I mean, we just went for hours, it seemed like, up and down the Bowery. I mean, you, everywhere you looked, you saw the worst kind of stuff, suffering and, and um, people lying out in the streets and in the doorways, you know, bums and, 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 and uh, skid row guys. And then it just like all of a sudden we rounded this corner and there were these beautiful high-rise apartments and these magnificent stately churches. You just kind of go from one place into a different world. And so he just says, but now. And all of a sudden we just come into this new world like rounding the corner out of the slums. I want you to notice the top part of this outline. Because on the left he describes the way we were and on the right how we are now. 
We were under God's wrath, now under grace. Spiritually dead and depraved, spiritually alive forevermore. Proven guilty in ourselves, declared righteous in Christ, condemned by the law. It just goes on and on. You just come out of the slums, round the corner, into life. Barnhouse calls this the most amazing, the most important paragraph in all of God's written Word. William Barclay says the most glorious word in the New Testament is the word but. And so he describes the way we were, and then he just comes in with that glorious word and says, Now, but now, look at the way we are. In order to put this all together, I want us to go back to chapter 1, and I look at verse 16, because that's the way it's tied here to this. Remember, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And then he says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed. In what? Well, in the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation is revealed the righteousness of God. Now watch carefully. The righteousness of God there does not refer to what God is like. It is not a reference to the righteousness, which is one of the attributes of God, to the righteousness of God. It re it's a reference to our right standing with God. It's not a description of how God is. It's a description of how, what right standing with God is. And so he says in the gospel is revealed how a man has right standing with God. In the gospel is revealed how this righteousness of God is infused into man so that man stands rightly before God. And then he just turns immediately to talk about the need of this righteousness. Verse 18 and following of chapter 1, he's talking about, he, he deals, he works on that subject. He says that these pagans and these scribes, the worst kind of people, these perverts that we talked about. And he says these moralists who condemn others and these religious do-gooders, all of us need right standing with God for we're all lost and we need the power of God unto salvation. So that verses 18 of chapter 1 from there to chapter 3 verse 20 is this parenthetical sentence that describes why we need the right standing with God that's revealed in the gospel. And now he comes to tell us what the gospel is and how this gospel which is the power of God unto, unto salvation brings right standing with him. And he says four things about the gospel. First of all, he says that this gospel is the transference. Now watch this. It's the transference of righteousness from God's heart to your life. The gospel is that God transfers His righteousness from His heart to your life and says three things about this righteousness. First of all, this righteousness is not legal. That is, it's not a reward. It's apart from the law. This righteousness which is, a trans, which is transferred from God's heart to your life is not something you earn. It's not something you achieve. The second thing he says about this righteousness is, in verse 21, that it is not new. It's witnessed to by the law and the prophets. Now what he's talking about there is, the law of 
of um, sacrifices so that they had certain laws to bring sacrifices. And as they brought those sacrifices, what was the witness of those sacrifices? The witness of those sacrifices was that there was coming the Lamb of God one day, the supreme sacrifice, which would take away the sin of the world. So every time they brought a sacrifice, it witnessed to the coming Lamb. And it was witnessed to by the prophets because all through the prophets there is this message of messianic hope. It's found in Isaiah and Micah at Christmas time. We'll be quoting it. It's found in the book of Ezekiel and Jeremiah. He talks about this new law written on the heart. And all through in Zechariah and all through these prophets, they bear witness to the fact that Jesus Christ is coming. It's not something new that he's talking about. And it's not original with him, he said. This righteousness did not originate with something we said. It originates when one places his faith in Jesus Christ. Now, we need to clarify some terms. What does the word righteousness mean there in this text? It means having worth. It means considered of value. That's an ache of this age. For my generation and yours, this culture of ours wrestles with the feelings of inferiority. Sneed says that this age of self-doubt and self-depreciation with a prevailing sense of living without worth is the prevailing sickness of our age. Our longing is to be of value and worth. And what this text says is this, that when a person receives Jesus Christ, when you have Jesus Christ, you have maximum worth. It says that that when you have Jesus Christ, God gives you, makes you useful. I love the story of Onesimus, the runaway slave. I love to preach from the book of Philemon. You know that story, the irony of that whole story is that Onesimus' name means useful. And useful, the slave ran away from his slave master and went to Rome and he was looking for the Apostle Paul. He no doubt had heard of him from his slave master Philemon, so he went looking for him. Where do you find Paul in a big city? Well, you could go to the marketplace and listen from some street preacher. He knew where to find him. He went straight to jail and that's where he found him. And the Apostle Paul there led him to Christ and sent him back to Philemon. And it shows a remarkable confidence of Paul in this new redeemed man and shows a lot of confidence that Philemon would even receive him back. And there's a remarkable statement in that as he sent Onesimus back to his slave master. He said this, He who was once unprofitable to you is now profitable both to you and to me. And what he was saying is this, now that Onesimus has found Jesus Christ, he has found value to both of us. All I had to offer him was brokenness and strife, and he made something beautiful out of my life. And this transfer of righteousness, watch this, he says in verse 24, is a matter of justification. Now let's read verses 21 through 24. And being assured that... Am I on the right page? Verse 24. Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. This transfer of righteousness is a matter of justification. Now I want you to see this illustration here tonight because um, the first time I heard this, I, I literally um, wanted to shout for joy. What does it mean? Um, give me a picture of justification. 
Well, if you can imagine tonight some book that contains the record of your sin in that book, and there's a page in that book, probably take a big page, there's a page in that book that contains the record of your sin in mine, has your name over that page. And somewhere in that book of life, there is a page that has Jesus' name on it and His sin. There's no sin on His page. Justification, pictured as this, it's the act whereby God takes your sin off your page and transfers that sin over to His page, puts it on His page. And that's a wonderful thing, but it's not all there is. On that page that has the name of Jesus, there is the record of His righteousness. His righteousness. Justification is to take that righteousness off the page that has the name of Jesus. His righteousness. Turns the page and finds your name and puts it on the page that contains your name. So that justification is the transference of your sin to Him and His righteousness to you. A transference of the righteousness of God. It's called imputation. The transference of the righteousness of Christ over to your life from God to you. That leads me to point two, that this gospel is a gift of grace. Now here is a theological definition of justification. Please jot this down. Justification is a key term in Scripture, and this is what it means. Justification is the sovereign act of God whereby He declares righteous the believing sinner while he is in a state of sinning. It is the act of the sovereign God who declares you to be righteous when you believe in Jesus Christ even though you're still in the act of sinning. So that He takes you and places you into Christ and that position, in that position, you're exalted to the, the ultimate because you stand in Christ, you stand in His righteousness. It's being declared righteous without a cause. Now that means that God looks down and He saves you not because, not for the reason that you did anything or said anything. He saves you. He justifies you without a cause. It means that God saves you not on the basis of what you do. Your kids ever answer your uh, questions like this? Well, just because. Drives me crazy. Well, why did you do something like that? Well, just because. And, and, and to me, that's no answer. But, you know, that's a biblical, that is a real good biblical answer. I hate to admit that, you know, here. Because I mean, you, know, you say, you know, why does God save a man? I mean, why were you saved? See. And why were you saved? And why were we saved? Well, you know, and, and all of a sudden we go blank. Because there is nothing in us that commends us to God. He saves us just because he saves us. Now, I, I, I try to tell my Sunday school class on Sunday morning, and I grill them and drill them. I told them this morning what they, when they'd turn over in the grave, 
when they died remembering this statement that the New Testament gives us the principles of the Christian life and the Old Testament gives us the pictures of the Christian life. And I want to read to you tonight the picture of what that means that He saves us without a cause. It's pictured in why He chose the Jews. Listen. For you're a holy people to the Lord, your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set His love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples for you're the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you, now, how in the world, why in the world would God save us? And why would He transfer His righteousness over to us? Surely there's something that we've done to deserve that. He does it just because. He loves us. That takes a lot of pressure off, doesn't it? It means that little black boy in the ghetto of uh, Washington, D.C., is accepted and changed and saved the same way as the man in the cabinet in Washington, D.C. And you say, well, now that really runs against the grain of anything I've ever been taught, anything I've ever been taught. I mean, I grew up in a working, hard-working environment. My father was a, had this work ethic that believed that, that um, idleness was sin. And I was absolutely wanting to be the biggest sinner, you know, in Knox County, and, uh, and, and he, he'd say, you know, I mean, he'd say, um, there's no such thing as a free lunch. And anything that's worthwhile, you have to earn. You have to work for. And I grew up with this mentality that anything that was given as a gift, that was a gift of grace, undeserved, unmerited, really wasn't worth having. You say, well, if it's a gift of grace, well, it must have, you know, that's pretty cheap. No, it's not cheap. It cost him his son. And he uses the word redemption in this text. And that word means to buy, to purchase with a price. It means to buy back at the effect of paying a payment. And in Paul's day, the Romans brought these slaves out in the, in the agora, the slave market, and they stripped them naked and they put them on a slave block to be sold. And these people would come and purchase them. And after you purchased the slave, you were free to do with it anything you please. I mean, you could cut his throat. That was up to you. And the Apostle Paul says, in essence, that we are born in that pocket of need, and one day he paid the price to redeem us. Third, it's a display of love. I want you to look at that. It's a display of love. Look at verse 25 whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed. Underline that tremendous thought. For the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time that He might be, the ju might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now this gospel is a display of love, displays His love. Da Vinci, the famous artist, said one time, he said that pers uh, perspective was the um, bridle and the rudder of painting. That's also true of 
of interpretation. Per perspective is the rudder that guides interpretation. And, and, and it's true with regard to this passage here. I want you to notice the perspective of this passage. Are you with me? The last verses we've been discussing have been from man's viewpoint. But when we come to verse 25, God changes perspective and He gives some truths from His perspective. Now watch this. It'll help you understand this passage. Not only does the death of Jesus benefit man, but the death of Jesus benefits God as well. And there are two main benefits that God derives from the death of Jesus on the cross. There is the benefit of the, of the fact that His heart was satisfied. And secondly, that the scandal of His name was silenced. And this benefit is called propitiation. Now that's a big old word we toss around, nobody knows. Strangely enough, that word comes from a root word to pacify, it's an ugly thought. To, to say that God was pacified. It means to be satisfied. Now watch this. When Jesus died on the cross, not only was the justice of God satisfied, but His wounded heart was satisfied so that He could be both just and justifier. Let me see if I can illustrate. Suppose I'm traveling through the city of Medill, Oklahoma, and I often do, and I often I do sometimes uh, <coughs> exceed speed limit. Now there's a place over there right outside of Medill that's a speed trap, and they got a guy waiting there. And uh, suppose this guy writes me out a ticket, and I go before the judge, and I walk into the court and find out that the judge is my long-lost uncle. Hadn't seen me for years. Gerald, good to see you, buddy. How you been? How's your folks? Well, they passed away. Well, too bad. We have this long conversation. All of a sudden I'm thinking, I may get out of this thing after all. And so he starts to, you know, draw the bottom line and he says, oh, well, Gerald, I know you're a good, I hadn't seen you in a long time and I know you're a good guy. I'm going to let you off. Now the law has been violated. If he does that, he's not just. Now here's the dilemma of God. If there is, if we could say God has a problem, is that He loves us and He wants us to be in heaven with Him forever, and yet we have broken God's rules. Say it plain enough for kids to understand it. We have violated the laws of God. How can He be just and justifier at the same time? And the Scripture says, that the death of Jesus, because He poured out His wrath upon His own Son, enabled justice to be satisfied. But that's not all. Watch this carefully. I know a guy one time who, who was hurt in an industrial accident and, it, and it, it, it mangled his arm and he was never able to use his arm again. And he sued the company for uh, negligence and won a million dollar settlement and he got justice for what happened to him. But it didn't change the way he felt. He was still bitter. Even though justice had been satisfied, he still had resentment for what had happened to him. Now don't think for a minute 
that I'm even suggesting that God would ever have bitterness and resentment. But what I am saying, and this is the glory of this passage, is this, that when God poured out His wrath upon His Son, that satisfied His justice. That satisfied the principle of justice. And in that event, and in that redemptive act, God no longer holds it against me, and He no longer harbors that against me. So that He was able to pour out all of His wrath upon His Son, and to me He has only love. The wonder of that. And that's what the... That's what the gospel is. It's a display of God's love. Not only that He will pour out His wrath so that justice can be satisfied, but in doing that, He harbors no resentment to us of us. And He makes that marvelous statement there when He says that, that He passes over the sin previously committed. You know what that means? You think about that a minute. I mean, I've had people read that and say, wait a minute, you know, they... They think that's a negative statement. You know what that means? It means, listen to this, it means that when Jesus died on the cross, when Jesus died on the cross, His death was retroactive. So that His death covers the sin of the past and the present and the future, for there is no time span with Him. So those folks who are over there in that Old Testament who sinned against the Father, but who by faith looked for the coming of the Lord Jesus, when He came, and by faith they anticipated the coming of the Lamb, which would take away the sin of the world, and they believed in that messianic message of the prophet, and they looked for the coming of the Messiah by faith when His death occurred. It was retroactive to them. Glory. The fourth thing about the gospel is that it is a declaration of faith. Now, I won't have time to mention, just to mention that, that, that this gospel occurs, this power of God unto salvation is made effective by one's faith in Christ. Now, there are three questions. Look at here, verse um, 27 and following. First question, where is boasting? Boasting is excluded. Nobody struts into heaven like a peacock. You step into heaven by the grace of God. It excludes boasting. Can anybody qualify? Look at verse 29. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is He the God of the Gentiles also? I mean, and then the Apostle Paul says the most astounding statement the Jews could ever hear from a Jew. Yes, He is the God of the Gentiles also. He's not just a geographical God. He's the God of the hajimis of the world. And the people who live on the backside of this earth, He's the God. They're God also. Anybody can qualify. Well, He says, what about the law? Does that nullify the law? Does that make it void? Not on your life. For the law makes it clear that a man is not right and the Apostle Paul says in the book of Galatians that the law is the schoolmaster that brings us to Jesus. 
And the law makes it clear that man is not right and reminds us that there is no righteousness in the law that we have to look somewhere else. So the law is not nullified by Christ. The law points us to Him as our only hope of righteousness, right standing with God. Are y'all still with me on this? Isn't this wonderful? I see you're underwhelmed. Application. What is the application? Two applications. The first application is this, that the main emphasis of salvation is a gift and not a reward. There's the watershed, my friend. Salvation is either by gift or by reward. It cannot be both. Once it becomes a payment for a, a work extracted, it is no longer a gift. It is either by gift or reward. It's either, it cannot be, it's either or. It cannot be both and. And the main emphasis of the gospel is that salvation is a free gift. Second, the major subject of the gospel is the Father and not the sinner. Now watch this. If salvation is the result of works, who's the major character? The worker. If salvation is the result of human effort, who's the main character? The human. And he gets the glory. And so he can put his thumbs in his lapel and say, look at what I have achieved, and he becomes the main character and is the, is the center of main focus. But the, the main character of the gospel is the Father, and he gets all the glory because this salvation from front end to back end is his plan and his work and his accomplishment. Glory. And now let's read this passage together. I'll read the text in the end. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all those who believe, there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace, through redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This way to this was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time, that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he the God? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since indeed God, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, is one. Just one God. Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we make the law make sense when we do. Let's pray together.
Father, we are amazed at the wonder of this word and the glory of a salvation that's by grace through faith revealed even in Old Testament law confirmed by the prophets made visible in the death of Jesus. Oh, I pray tonight that men and women, boys and girls would realize that they're working for nothing. That by simply trusting in Jesus and Jesus alone one has worth with God one has right standing with God. I pray for anyone who is lost tonight, whether he's watching by television or is in this place, come to an awareness that apart from Jesus Christ there is no forgiveness of sin. Pray for that in Jesus' name. Now we have three invitations. I invite you tonight to come, trust Jesus, let him just take the righteousness of Christ right here at this altar, place it on your life. Come trusting him for your salvation. You're a child and you don't understand that, you know what it means to trust somebody, take care of you? Will you just put all your trust in your mother or dad? Would you be willing just to place all your trust in Jesus, take away your sin and save you? Maybe you need to come tonight to join a church or to get something right between you and God that's out of round and out of whack. Whatever you want, God wants you to do, that's what we want for you. When we stand to sing, we invite you to come.